Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. Today, I'm interested in a very influential figure of Russian politics and Russian security structures, Nikolai Platonovich Patrushev. My expert today is the one and only Professor Mark Galotti. Mark, welcome. Good to be here. Professor Garotti is a British historian, a lecturer, writer on Russian politics, Russian security, Russian history. He's director of consultancy Mayak Intelligence. He's an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies, a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, and associate fellow in Euro-Atlantic geopolitics at the Council on Geostrategy. Mark has been writing for The Spectator, The Moscow Times, Foreign Affairs, and other publications. His latest book is Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine, published in November 2022. Among other activities, Mark is also having own podcast in Moscow Shadows, which I highly recommend for students and international audience if you want to know some details and I underline this word details about Russian politics and Russian security. So Nikolai Patrushev is a very influential figure in Russian politics and, and security. So let's start, uh, let's start with a little bit of overview. We know that Patrushev is in charge of Security Council in Russia. So what is this council and What's the connection and what's the hierarchy of it? Is it under Putin himself or is it sort of independent institution in Russia? How would you characterize the Security Council in Russia, Mark? I mean, in theory, the Security Council is an advisory body to the president and it brings together all the key figures involved in security quite broadly conceptualized. So yes, it's the head of the intelligence and security services, it's the defense minister and so forth, but it's also other people who have an influence. They may be involved with the defense industrial complex, or we have, for example, the, the mayor of Moscow, Sergei Sabyanin, who's a sort of a part-time member, shall we say. So, you know, again, it, it, the idea is a whole body of people who can advise the president, and it does. It reports directly to the president, who is the chair, but in practice, I think two points are worth making. First of all, the Security Council is not a decision-making body. I think mean, some people think of it as almost like some kind of uh, analogue to the old Soviet Politburo. It's not. In practice, it's really there for reports to be made and for coordination on decisions that have already been made. And these decisions are made by the president with small little kind of ad hoc circles of essentially whoever he wants to talk to. And then the decision can be rolled out at the Security Council. And it's also a place to resolve kind of horizontal disagreements. So, you know, who's going to be responsible for what? Um, and it's 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 a quite a large and often quite sort of unwieldy body. So, you know, the Security Council is in some ways much less. It's important just simply because the people who are sitting around the table are important people. The second point that I think it's worth making, and this links directly to our focus on, on Patrushev, is certainly for my money, the most important element of the Security Council is not the council itself. It's the Secretariat that notionally sort of services it and which is, as the Secretary of the Security Council, Patrushev's empire. Because increasingly, that has become the crucial gatekeeper 
of all the kind of security and foreign affairs related information that reaches the president's desk. Most, if not all, but most of it in some way or another is influenced or controlled or let through by the Security Council Secretariat. So in this respect, Patrushev has become a kind of cross between Putin's national security advisor and his director of national intelligence, neither of which is actually a role in, in, in the Russian system. So for me, that's the real power. It's not the Security Council itself, but the very, very secretive bureaucracy that surrounds it. And how transparent is that council? For instance, is there a website that we can read reports and what decisions they made? Or is it more like secretive organization that is, you know, close to public? I mean, it's pretty secretive. It's interesting. If you go on to the Kremlin.ru website, you can find all the references to the Security Council meetings that are held. The interesting thing is that on one level, it is highly transparent in the sense of if you go onto the Kremlin.ru website, every meeting is mentioned and often the whatever is the, the core topic of it is. But when you actually look at the text, it will generally say, you know, there's a meeting and these are the people who attended and Putin starts and then it cuts off. So, I mean, in practice, it is clearly highly secretive. Um, they they go through, there's still a kind of a vestigial show of some degree of transparency, but in practice, no. And especially since February of last year, because in some ways, whatever the actual ostensible topic of the Security Council deliberations, really, it's all about the war in its direct and indirect means. And therefore, I think for obvious reasons, they, they now keep it very out of sight. So what's the position of Patoshev in uh, Putin's inner circle and why Putin and Patoshev are close or it says that you know they are close friends maybe you know allies so what what is the behind the scenes in that I mean I think on one level these guys have known each other since the 1970s when they were in the KGB and what was then still Leningrad together and their careers have intersected at different times when Putin stood down as director of the FSB, the Federal Security Service, Patrushev was the man he chose to, to uh, lead it after him. I think the thing is, it's interesting, this question about the relationship. I don't think they would really be classed as friends, as we think of it. There's, there's very, very few instances of, for example, the two of them having any kind of social engagement. And it's not like Defence Minister Shoigu who famously takes Putin hiking through the, the mountains of Altai and so forth. Um, I think the thing is, I think Putin trusts Patrushev because Patrushev is, is a very familiar character to him. I mean, actually, if you look at Putin's inner circle, let's take out Shoigu, because he is a bit of an, uh, a wild card in that respect. And he's the only member of that circle who, who let's say, was not really from you know, the 1990s part of Putin's circle. They're pretty much all between the ages of 68 and 72, 73. Most of them, almost all of them actually have KGB backgrounds. And in addition, they didn't come from established nomenclatura families. In other words, they weren't existing members of the Soviet elite. They were the sort of the first in their family to finally make it into the big time, which means that when the Soviet Union collapsed, so too did the future, the glorious golden future that they thought was unrolding before them. And that's led to a certain degree of resentment, which they then have cast in geopolitical terms. And the thing is, 
in some ways, I think Patrushev echoes so many of Putin's assumptions and prejudices, but a little bit more. I mean, we can talk about the sort of the nuances between their, their, their positions, but essentially from Putin's point of view, Patrushev is the ideal kind of subordinate, the subordinate who basically believes what you want to believe, who wants to do the things that you want him to do, um, and essentially has not got a political ambition of his own. I mean, this is the interesting thing. So many of the people around him, you can see in other circumstances, they wouldn't mind sitting in the big chair in the Kremlin themselves. Patrushev's not like that. He is happy being a kind of grey cardinal behind the scenes. He's not in any way. I mean, he 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 is definitely not the sort of person to kind of glad hand the public and make friends and so forth. He's he's a very chilly, austere figure in many ways. Um, keeps himself fit and so forth, but you know, absolutely not uh, one to go and sort of out play sports with the boys. Um, and in that context, so Patrushev is very useful because he's not a threat. So I think for all these reasons, you know, Putin trusts Patrushev. I honestly don't know, and this is not a kind of passive aggressive saying, I don't, but I honestly don't know how far Putin likes Patrushev. And frankly, well, we probably never will know until he's gone and we have, you know, people finally writing their memoirs. You know, some students uh, might have you know, a bit of struggle to to distinguish between oligarchs and others. So for the clarification, is Patrushev an oligarch or not? He's not, no. I mean, if one thinks almost like there, there are three different sources of power and three different types of key figure within the Russian system, there's economic power, and that's really in the hands of the oligarchs. I personally think that on the whole, the oligarchs now should be regarded as the weakest of all of them, because they're now pretty much all dependent on the Kremlin. They're oligarchs so long as Putin lets them be oligarchs. So it's almost as if actually they're just now merely managers for the Kremlin. You know, Alexei Miller, who runs Gazprom, in some ways, he's kind of minister for gas in, in any other word. Secondly, there are the technocrats, the people who are sort of dominant within, who actually basically run the country for Putin, from Prime Minister Mishustin on down. And in the main, these are actually economic, if not political, liberals, many of them, frankly, pretty horrified by, by the war. But you know, what can they do? They're just doing their best to keep things sort of rolling along. And, and theirs is the power of, a, of administration. And then there are the Silviki, the so-called men of force who are within the, the military, but above all, the security intelligence apparatus. And theirs is the power of, firstly, Putin's own personal patronage, that he trusts them the most. But also, you know, to be blunt, these are the guys with guns. And especially at the moment, you know, obviously in time of war, they acquire all kinds of new powers and, and such like. And I think in, in this context, uh, Patrushev is interesting because he's clearly aligned with the Siloviki. You know, he's one of them. He's ex-KGB, FSB, has all the same kind of paranoid instincts and such like. But he doesn't actually control anyone. And this is the interesting thing. He has no administrative power whatsoever. The only power he's got is to hire and fire within the Security Council Secretariat. What he has, though, is massive influence. Putin listens to him. He's probably the key figure painting a picture of the world for Putin. And therefore, you know, this is one of the, again, one of the reasons why, why, why Putin can trust him, because actually Patrushev has, well, 
his son has a lot of money, whose career may well, or his eldest son particularly, um, Dimitri, now Minister for Agriculture, you know, it, it, some unkind souls would suggest that uh, Dimitri's rise owes something to his dad's influence. Um, you know, but but Patrushev himself, he's not, I mean, he, he does not live a hand-to-mouth existence, but he's not vastly rich. He doesn't have strong administrative power. He doesn't actually directly control any of the men with guns. But the point is, he influences the guy who tells all those other groups what to do. Also, when you mention son of Patrushev, uh, Dmitry, he is the Minister of the Agriculture in Russia. There is also the second son, Andrei, mm-hmm. and he's very, very interested in energy in Arctic, and he acquires many stakes in very important uh, companies and ports and exploration you know companies so it's also good to study the sons because that's all that's there's a nice parallel between the father and the and the sons but they very much follow the same pattern as we've seen in a lot of other key russian figures they go into politics they don't want their kids to follow them into politics they what they do is they use their political influence to set their kids up in business and make pot loads of money um, and that's very much the case here. Because look, some some people sometimes talk about uh, Dmitry Patrushev as a potential next, you know, future president. Now, I see no. I mean, it may well be that that, that, that Nikolai, the father, sort of has such uh, dreams. I see no real signs that Dmitry himself has such aspirations. I think he's just happy, basically, in his position now. Increasingly so, actually, he can take a cut of all kinds of deals that are being done all across the sort of agriculture and agriculture-related business sector. He can do very, very well for himself. Why get all the hassle of being president? Hmm. And also, you know, when you go for negotiations, even Andre or Dimitri, and, and you have a business card, oh, my father is Nikolai, you know, <laughs> that's that's a quite quite influential leverage when you negotiate with someone. Absolutely, absolutely. But let's, let's go back to the father, because we know that uh, through his career, he was in charge of the special department at uh, FSB dealing with the industrial or economic uh, intelligence and security. But then from 1999 to 2008, he was in charge at Lublanka, uh, the FSB Federal Services uh, for Security. What was his influence when he was in charge of FSB? And I'm basically, you know, trying to get what's the legacy of Patrushev in FSB? Because, you know, he, he basically devoted his life to, to secret service of Russia. But can we characterize or describe his legacy in FSB when he was director? Is there, is there something that you spot during your research? I mean, I think the, the key thing is that, on the one hand, he absolutely strengthened the FSB and the degree of autonomy it has. And and frankly, the, the degree of freedom that FSB operators or officers have to do what they want. Um, you know, I think this is it, the degree to which the FSB essentially operated. I won't quite say always outside the law, but essentially when it wanted to, could. But secondly, is the essentially personalistic nature of the FSB's loyalties. I mean, the point is, by this point already, Patrushev was in effect Putin's man. And and the idea that the FSB is not a force which is shaped by the law or by the constitution or whatever, but by personal loyalties, I think that is absolutely crucial. And interestingly, after all, when Patrushev left the FSB, the man who was put in, you know, he basically put in as, as his successor, Alexander Bortnikov, 
who is increasingly aging and ailing, but nonetheless is still there. I mean, Bortnikov is essentially Patrushev's mini-me. You know, he has a man without any particular um, identity of his own, except, again, a personal loyalty to Patrushev and a personal loyalty to Putin. So I think, you know, the, the fact that this became not so much the, the Federal Security Service, but the Putin Security Service, I think was crucial. The interesting thing was, in those years, these were the years before we saw the really serious crackdowns. I mean, obviously, there, there was the, the ghastly sort of operations in, in Chechnya, in which the FSB did play a key role. But essentially, at this point, the FSB was not being expected to do particularly obvious, extraordinary and horrific things as, as now. So on one level, actually, Patrushev's FSB looked relatively house-trained. But that was just simply because... If I can mix my metaphors, Putin hadn't left left them off the leash at that time. But no, I, I mean, I think that the, the fact that the, the FSB now regards itself as, I mean, to, to use one of their own phrases, the new nobility, the sort of the best and the brightest, the special, you know, Putin's aprichniki, we well, you know, use whatever metaphors one wants, is very much, I think, a, a, a Patrushev legacy. Mm. And in, in security circles of experts, scholars also in Russia, does Patrushev have sort of a respect in expertise in a side that he's not only influential figure, but he's also expert on security? Or it's mostly about portraying him as a as a someone who is in power, but don't question his security expertise? This is a really interesting question, actually. Um I get the sense that he's seen us as okay. <laughs> I mean, which precisely, you know, not disastrous, but certainly not one one of the greats. I mean, if you think about his career, look, it wasn't quite as um, lackluster as Putin's within the KGB. But even so, you know, he was definitely not one of the really high flyers. He was essentially a counterintelligence officer. Um, you know, the really the real elites went into foreign intelligence. You know, people like, for example, Sergei Ivanov who you know was an, at one point was another one of the key sort of silovic figures and you know it is clear that on one level putin felt a bit in awe of ivanov because ivanov was every you know was the kind of kgb officer whom putin had wanted to be the suave sophisticated foreign intelligence officer speaks multiple languages you know gets on with condoleezza rice you, you name it but at the same time putin clearly actually quite resented him as well patrushev's one of his strengths is precisely that he was a sort of a, a solid B. You know, he he, uh, he did his work. He was counterintelligence. He was, in, you know, later on, he'd become head of the internal security division. And then, as you said, the economic security divisions, which is where you actually make your money in the FSB. Um, you know, but but nonetheless, he he was not... He was not someone who brought about sort of you know radical reconstruction you know, of, of, of the service. He's not someone who presided over great triumphs, but nor did things go disastrously badly. I mean, I think the FSB people like him precisely because he brought them lots of perks and autonomy. But in terms of actually the kind of the effectiveness of the service, you know, it's very hard to to, to see people who or could come across people who actually regard him as in any way outstanding. And what's about uh, Sergei Narishkin and, and Patrushev? Those two, how they go along together? I, I suspect, again, here we're into supposition, that Narishkin, like most people within the senior elite, is quite scared of Patrushev. I mean, look, 
Narishkin was not, I mean, he, again, he has a KGB past, but he became head of the Foreign Intelligence Service in 2016, not because people were thinking Narishkin's the guy we need, or because not even because Narishkin was lobbying for it, but basically he needed to be moved from his position as Speaker of the State Duma to give, you know, to, to, to free up the place um, for the sort of next candidate. And they had to find, because he'd been a good soldier, you know, metaphorically, they had to find him a suitably sort of honourable place. And, you know, he was given this. And I, I mean, I don't think he minds it because it's a very prestigious position. Um, but I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, frankly, for a, more than a year, I think Narishkin has been trying to sort of engineer a move away from the Foreign Intelligence Service to kind of his last job, a sort of semi-retirement job, possibly as a senator or something like that. Um, so, I mean, in that in that context, it would take a very strong-minded individual to retain the overall autonomy of the Foreign Intelligence Service. And Narishkin, I don't know if it's that he's not strong, strong-willed, but certainly just has chosen not to pick a fight with with Patrushev. And therefore, you know, although the SVR provides its own intelligence briefings direct to the president, there's been a lot more Security Council Secretariat influence over what the SVR says to ensure that the president is not confused by, by competing perspectives. And you know, we have a bunch of SVR officers who are now attached into the Security Council Secretariat and you know there is a sense that they may be then kind of going native there and such like. So you know I think Narishkin works with with Patrushev okay because basically he doesn't challenge Patrushev, and also because ultimately he's not challenging the Federal Security Service, even though the Federal Security Service FSB is increasingly also running its own foreign operations, separate, completely separate from those of the SVR, often actually in competition. Narishkin does not kick up a fuss. So he takes the line of least resistance. From all those people that we mentioned, and, and maybe others, is there anyone who has opposed opinions against Patrushev, or who is slightly criticizing Patrushev, or there is no such a brave man? I mean, again, it's very hard to peer into the sort of the, the black box at the very heart of the Putin system. Um, I mean, I think we have to distinguish between disagreeing with him on detail and challenging his vision. I mean, he clearly has a very extreme vision of the world and how this hostile conspiratorial West is doing everything it can to you know, do down Russia, maybe even break it apart. And I'm sure there are others within the circle who, who regard that as a bit extreme, but you wouldn't necessarily challenge that, especially now. Um, when Russia is basically already in a, a war of sorts with with the West, I mean, we we do know that there are kind of specific issues on which Patrushev um, has has been basically defeated by his rivals. I mean, the classic example is right at the beginning of this war, Patrushev immediately came out with a with a very very um, maximalist economic program. Essentially saying, look, you know, we're now going to be in a total war. We need to have a full mobilization economy, and everything has to be sort of pushed in that direction. And at first, in the first couple of days, Putin was clearly influenced by that and inclining towards it. And the technocrats, you know, above all, Prime Minister Mishustin, but also Chair of the Central Bank Nabulina, 
were horrified. But the point is they couldn't actually get to Putin to try and argue their, their, their case. It's very hard to actually get to speak to Putin, especially if in some ways he's dodging what he knows is going to be a difficult thing. Must remember, Putin hates making tough decisions and he will hide from them if he can. Now, eventually, Nabulina actually submitted her resignation. Now, Nabulina is a phenomenally uh, capable central banker um, and also is, is one of the relatively few economic technocrats whom Putin genuinely respects. And that kind of got through and, and basically Putin said, no, you're not you're not resigning. But that meant that there was a point of traction, which meant that, that Nabulina, Mishustin and the others could then make their case. And actually, Putin agreed that, no, at the moment, it was important to keep some kind of a mixed economy to basically try and maintain the notion that, you know, everything's going on as usual. Now, that's beginning to uh collapse now, frankly, as we're 18 months into the war and we're increasingly seeing sort of Western companies being expropriated and such like. But still, at that crucial moment, at the beginning of the war, Patrushev seemed to have made a had a success, but then was, you know, was basically outflanked by the technocrats. So it can happen on specific policy issues, but it's hard to say who is an enemy of Patrushev, because as I say, I think Patrushev is regarded as quite a fearsome creature. Um, and therefore, even if actually you, you think he's he's a ghastly human being, and certainly, you know, I've encountered people who do think he is a ghastly human being, and I think I suspect that they're right, um, you don't necessarily decide to sort of challenge him. And I think they won't. In some ways, I think the, on, the only person who can truly challenge Patrushev would, would be Putin. I think it's highly unlikely, but if Putin decided to turn against him, that's the point when Patrushev would realise he has no real allies. No one, as it were, willing to throw themselves on the grenade for him and no real institutional power either. You know, I mean, he has massive power so long as Putin is willing to grant him it. That's all. There is also emerging discourse about uh, Patrushev's influence on foreign policy, especially, you know, put it in a very simple way. Sergei Lavrov is doing job abroad. Masha Zakharova is handling the media in in Russia and, and all those questions. And, and there are Patrushev and Patrushev's people around the ministry. And, and I'm reading more and more articles how this power overlaps to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Even some people and, and some inside information indicate that Patrushev might be influential in making some key decisions about the Russian foreign policy. How realistic is this discourse and what do you think about it? Yes, I must admit, I, I agree. Look, ever since 2014 and the annexation of Crimea, we've seen Foreign Minister Lavrov almost visibly shrinking and with it the influence of MIT, the, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And after all, Lavrov was not part of that final decision about going into Crimea. He was just simply informed and he had to then spin it and sell it. And the thing is, look, Lavrov, it's astonishing. I mean, he was one of the great titans of international diplomacy. And now, increasingly, he's relegated to being the, the guy who sort of walks behind the elephant clearing up after it. And that's about it. He has to go out and often make deeply untenable positions. Uh, he doesn't seem to be you know, given much influence. It's an open secret that for years, every year he tries, he asks Putin to be allowed to retire. And Putin says no, because there is a sense there isn't an obvious replacement candidate. Though I think um, 
Ribkov, one of the first deputy ministers, is very much kind of presenting himself as the Lavrov 2.0 figure, but willing to go even further than, than, than Lavrov. Um, and yes, I think this is what's happened. Essentially, the foreign ministry has has lost its traction over the policymaking process. I mean, who who does Putin turn to, first and foremost, to know what's going on in the outside world? He turns to Patrushev, and he turns to uh, what's his name? Ushakov, who is his main sort of foreign, foreign policy advisor. Um, and Ushakov does not, again, he's not one to rock the boat. He's not one to actually sort of tangle with, with Patrushev. You know, he might well try and introduce some nuance here, but he's not going to turn around and say this is paranoid nonsense. So I think at, at that point, you might say that the, the foreign ministry often finds itself at a disadvantage. I remember some years back talking to a, a Russian diplomat who was thoroughly exasperated because he said the problem is that whenever anything arises, the first briefing documents that Putin reads on it have come from the Security Council and they come from the various spook agencies. And they've in a way already established his vision of what's going on. And then the foreign ministry is brought in and it makes its briefing, which is often very different from, from, from what the spooks are saying. And instead of him, Putin thinking, ha, huh, you know, I wonder if I'm being misled or misinformed by my intelligence services. Instead, he thinks, why are the diplomats so behind the curve? Why don't they see what's going on? So it's, it's very hard for, for, for me to really exert any traction. And foreign policy is, after all, one of those areas in which uh, the the role of the head of state, the chief executive, really, really matters. So I, I think, you know, for all of those reasons, I mean, MIT has been shrinking. And a whole variety of different actors have really been stepping into the gap. And this is what happens with this kind of adhocratic system, as in, in Putin's Russia, that in some ways, your responsibilities are whatever Putin chooses to, to make them. So, you know, Patrushev for years has essentially been the point man on the Balkans, very much shaping policy there. If you look at Venezuela, it's Igor Sechin, head of the Rosneft uh, oil company. Um, Syria, essentially, since 2015, has been a defense ministry sort of fiefdom. And what happens is, in some ways, the foreign ministry is it just ends up with whatever's left. I mean, for example, Afghanistan. Foreign ministry still very much shapes policy towards Afghanistan for two reasons. One is they have a very, very strong Afghan desk. But the other one is, the other reason is no one else wants it. Um, so I think for these reasons, absolutely. The, I mean, it, Patrushev is not the only person who has moved into that gap, but absolutely the foreign ministry now has very little real influence and essentially is just trying to execute why, whatever why, policies are given to it. Why do you think that Sergei Lavrov allows that? You know, Do you think that it's because of Crimea that Patushev's strategy was successful in, in some way? So he basically gave up and has said, oh, I'm just going to be officer instead of influential minister. Or, or where was that break point that Lavrov decided, okay, I'm going to do what you say, but you know, in, in, in my way? I think it's a, sort of more of an accretional thing. I mean, there is an element in which he just gave up at some point. And just thought, okay, well, I'll do what I'll do. And I think in part, again, it goes back to this issue of access to the president. Um, one of Putin's classic techniques, as I said, is that if he knows that there is going to be a kind of a policy row, he will try and avoid being any part of it. And I think this was the problem that, that, that Patrushev, because of his job, 
you know, he has, you know, he has a weekly personal one-to-one meeting with the president, as well as a whole variety of other engagements or whatever. There is no such kind of built-in process for the foreign minister. And so there was a period in which basically Putin was just not letting Lavrov through the door. And I think, you know, Lavrov, I think that, you know, basically has got the message and probably pushed back on, on a variety of issues. But, you know, when you keep failing, and when you're not allowed to actually leave the job, I think there comes a point where you think, oh, well, whatever, I'll, I'll to use the expression, phone it in instead. Yeah, because because Sergei Lavrov has changed rapidly. You know, if you track his career and, and international respect, you know, that's that's north and south in comparison, you know, what, what he was doing mm. before Crimea, before those events. Uh, you mentioned sort of interesting position of Patrushev on the West. And I read one article called Nikolai Patrushev, the man dripping poison into Putin's ear, written by article. Yeah, it's it's just written by some Mark Galeotti. And and basically, you know, then I researched those conspiracies and, and how he's thinking. And and we don't want to repeat what people can Google, what because this is all you can Google in English, it's not a big deal. But what is the essence of that attitude? What's what's behind that a person has such opinions and ideas? I mean, I've been unhealthily fascinated by Patrushev for years. And when I could still travel to Russia, I was banned last June. One of the things I was doing is trying to seek out people who had worked for or with or had some other engagement with, with Patrushev because you can't get to speak to Patrushev himself. And one of the questions that I'd always ask them is, does he really believe this kind of conspiratorial nonsense? And the consensus I got from people was that actually he probably does. And I think the the reasons are, look, I mean, one, I, I could talk in general terms about, you know, the, there is a strong still kind of conspirology within Russian culture. And one encounters it in sometimes in the most un- unexpected settings. A sense that it's always kind of wheels within wheels and dark powers working behind. Um, I think it also is look that, that Patrushev clearly, through the course of I would suggest the the, the the 2010s in particular, became more and more what we could almost call radicalized in his view that the West was behind so many of the, the woes facing Russia and everything from you know um Syrian uprisings that led to civil war to the Balotnaya protests in Russia to whatever he always saw the, the the sinister hand of the CIA and MI6 behind it and such like and once he'd sort of got into that mindset i think you 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 know human beings are a great engine of pattern recognition and even when there isn't a pattern we we will invent one and I think this is it. He kind of takes all these bits. But also, once people know what he wants to see, you know, it's not just Patrushev that that essentially plays Putin. There are lots of other people who want to get, whether it's, uh, you know, nice, juicy research funds from the Security Council budget or Patrushev's favour or whatever, who will essentially tell him what they think he wants to hear. So, you know, a, a lot of the conspiracy theories and such, like I think absolutely are sort of fanned by people around him because they, they recognize that he is, shall we say, in the market for them. 
and and then they they, they become they become a way of trying to retrospectively explain the world you know if you think that america is trying to dismantle the russian federation which he does believe and to a degree because essentially a russian psychic said so um then when someone points out that there's a fear that a supervolcano will explode in the Yellowstone, rendering much of the United States uninhabitable, then you can kind of retrofit that in. Ah, so that's why the Americans want Siberia. They want to be able to resettle there. I mean, a lot of this is, is quite astonishingly bizarre. But if no one is able and willing or dares to turn around and say, come on, Nikolai Platonovich, you know, that just doesn't make sense. Then, in a way, you you you, you get locked into that. I mean, it's it, it's honestly very hard to to explain. And and really, what you'd need is to be talking to a psychologist rather than a um, historian and a politologue. Um, but I mean, I think that seems to be the case. That it's almost like actually that you have this kind of self replicating process, whereby once you start to believe something, everyone will bring you data that seems to prove. That what you believe is true. Also, I was thinking uh, about you know the sentence that he's he's saying. You are in charge of intelligence in in terms of security council, so you can do this, and you have the latest information from whatever country. Why there is no like a leaked document, some proof, you know, about these Western acts? Because before the war, before the Crimea. The business between Russians and American companies in Siberia was was flourishing. You know, we have to admit mm. that. You know, the cooperation was going, and and when you suddenly say that the West wants just to grab the resources from Siberia, I mean, if I were a security boss, you know, I would I would take some leaked paper and show to the public. Oh, I'm speaking because my agents were able to gather or collect the intelligence, but we didn't see this. You know, we, we, we only mm. hear the sentences. Also the volcano and all that that things. Yes, there is a volcano in, in the park and, and you know there is a science around it. You just go to the NASA website or National Geographic and you can have like one hundred articles about it. But there is no such a proof or document that Patrushero is arguing with. It's always the interview in, in Russian language where the reporter is shaping the question so he can answer that you know that sort of narrative so this mm -hmm. is was this is also interesting because if i were a professor in in moscow or some unimportant officer yeah okay i can admit you know the conspiracy and all those but you are the boss of intelligence and security so people expect much more from you you know not just some publishing papers with with some you know sentences without without documents so I think this is also interesting detail, you know, when Patrushev speaks about those things. Yeah, and there's an element also in which, again, you you hunt for anything that looks as if it can be shoehorned into corroborating your view. Mm. So what happens is I'm sure that – well, let, let, let me give you kind of a, a slightly sort of random personal example. Um, as I say, I, I, I've been banned from Russia. Mm -hmm. And yet when I write something that actually fits any kind of Russian narrative – I will find even something like the ultra-Orthodox, ultra-nationalist Sagrat Tever approvingly quoting me as the, the eminent British politologist Mark Galliotti says that Ukrainian counteroffensive is having trouble because of X and Y or whatever. Um, you know, again, so it's, it's very much a session of, you know, if you look carefully, you will find something that you can piece together and you can claim to be or, or, or authoritative. 
I suspect that obviously on a on a rather grander level that that is also happening because you're absolutely right. I mean, they, we've never had them pretending that there is some aha, we've found this document. Especially the fact that that they, that they have this, and again, it's in part this notion that you know the, the, we always tend to assume that the other guy is that much smarter and and more collective than they really are. Um, you know, they honestly believe that there can be a long term Western strategy, which has spanned multiple U.S. presidencies, German chancellors, British prime ministers, and so forth. And yet it's still coherent. It's still continuing. And absolutely, it hasn't appeared on the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post, you know, in in an age when everything leaks. But the point is, what that happens is that becomes, ah, this shows just how good our enemies are, but also just how secret these plans are that they haven't leaked. You know, there there comes a point when these things become about faith rather than data. That's also the next question is connected to this and is about the war in Ukraine. You know, Patrushev is is in charge of of security strategy and, and all those things. And in some way, we see the Western intelligence presenting the photographs, documents, all the satellites, images, you know, and positions of the soldiers and and you know all those battle battlefield uh, you know narrative but we can't see this from the russian side and and my students are asking so russians they don't have satellites they don't don't have the the high level intelligence to to counter the western narrative which patrushev is in charge and alex bortnikov as well you know so so how would you explain this that from the western point of view there is everything which should be as as when you want to argue about your position, your stance, but from the Russian side, but not much those images, those evidence, that intelligence that was collected. Why is that? There's several reasons for that. One of them is there's no way of getting around the fact that if you decide to use intelligence materials, however carefully curated, to advance your narrative, you are providing some degree of access to your sources and methods you know there there is there is something that can be learned about you know quite what your capabilities are and your sources are and so forth now the west and obviously primarily this means the united states made a considered political judgment that it was important enough and you know, this is actually relatively rare it's not like it's a standard practice you know it's actually something that we've seen with this war that in fact you want to use your intelligence to basically build a political constituency to um, the term is pre-bunk potential Russian information operations and so forth. I don't see the Russians being at all willing to do anything that might uh, show their hand. I mean, again, I think you know the, the Russian approach is that if in doubt, you keep it secret. So for a start, you know, we're not going to expect to see anything like that kind of same sort of materials out there. Secondly, look, the West has had to do this precisely because it is a collection, a constellation of democracies. And if we're going to be spending billions of pounds, dollars and euros every month in support of Ukraine, in terms of both military and financial aid, we need to be thinking about the political dimension of this. There are no politicians who, after all, couldn't do something more more immediately politically useful for themselves if they had an extra billion to, to play around with. So I think, again, the, the, the use of intelligence is actually as a way of managing a, a, a collection of democracies in a way that Russia doesn't really have to. 
after all it's 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 not a democracy and becoming even further from a democracy every, every week then there's the point about once you start to lie it becomes very difficult to to actually kind of calibrate for the truth go back to for example when the very brief period when yuri andropov was was general secretary of the communist party having been head of the kgb before if you look at russia's crime rate or soviet union's crime rate under andropov it seems to skyrocket. Now, it's not actually as if there was any more crime or even more prosecutions, though there was a crackdown on corruption and absenteeism and so forth. It was mainly that for years, the Soviets had been distorting the crime figures to try and claim that crime was way lower than it really was and compare it with the West. And the trouble is they kind of locked themselves into that. And eventually, you know, Andropov, who, whatever his many flaws did actually believe in confronting realities, he actually mandated that the crime, the, the actual crime figures ought to be released. And therefore there was this embarrassing skyrocket. But that was just the crime figures and who actually looks at crime data. The war is a different matter. I mean, if one thinks of the narrative that has been spun to, to the, the Russian people, if all of a sudden you started presenting actual data, um, you know, it would be so out of kilter with the reality. I mean, this was in some ways one of Prigozhin's sins, as far as the Kremlin's concerned. He was getting closer to actually saying things as they, you know, talking about it as it really was. So I think in some ways, uh, that anyway, the Russians are now locked into it. And a final point to make, um, I remember back in, I forget the year now, but anyway, it, around 2016, I think it was, talking to a recently retired Russian intelligence officer who said that they, they, they'd learned, you do not bring bad news to the Tsar's table. In other words, that Putin has made it clear that he wants to hear the things that he wants to hear, not what he needs to hear. Um, and so there's a lot of very, still very good intelligence gathering going on. There's a lot of really smart analysts who are making sense of that intelligence. But in the briefing process, whereby that analysis is meant to be communicated into policymaking, that's where it all gets rewritten, distorted, censored, curated because no one wants to basically challenge what are the orthodoxies in Putin's circle. And again, these are very much Patrushevian orthodoxies. So you end up with stuff getting rewritten and, you know, in a way that would make the whole Iraqi WMD saga look like positively small beer. Um, so I think that's also the problem that actually you, you, your, your intelligence does not support your narrative. So, of course, you're not going to put it out there. That's interesting because I I remember times when I was uh, reading the newspaper, and there is a FSB has academy for young graduates, and after graduation uh, they rent like twenty six uh, Mercedes and they were going mm. through the Moscow, and next day in all the newspapers in Russia the headlines were thank you for letting your faces to be indexed by NSA and CIA. So, you know, that was also a big scandal in Russia related to the secret secret services. Do you think that Patrushev has any weakness that's considerable of mentioning? Or he's perfectly sealed as a person, perfectly decent, and he knows what to do to protect himself? I think that, I mean, his weaknesses are in some ways his strengths. 
I mean, first of all, precisely that I cannot really see how his power base is likely to survive Putin. Um, because as I said, I mean, you know, his his institutional power is minimal. What he has is influence. Now, it may be that, let's say, you know, again, obviously, if there's any kind of a managed succession, then Patrushev will have a chance to influence the succession process. But if Putin drops dead tomorrow morning and you have the sort of, the, you know, the various powers that be negotiating over what happens, I I do wonder if, A, they may well all agree that Patrushev, like Lavrenti Beria, is the one man whom they all think is actually too dangerous to allow in the process. But also if just simply that's when Patrushev's lack of allies will really come forth. I mean, he has... He has pragmatic allies. You know, people when what he is saying is in someone else's interest, and they have all kinds of good reasons to support him. He also clearly has the the Bortnikov factor. But as I said, Bortnikov himself is. It's interesting. We haven't seen Bortnikov in the flesh for a long time. Even the Security Council sort of meetings that he attends, it's it's always video meetings. He's meant to be very ill. He's been wanting to retire for some time. Now his likely successor. Uh, a man by the name of Karolyov, a rather deeply unpleasant man, unfortunately also probably an able man. But the point is, is is from the next generation down, does not have the same kind of personal relationship with, with Patrushev. And if Karolyov went into power, you know, in, in the FSB, I can see that he's exactly the sort of person who would assure Patrushev of his undying support right up to the point where it became inconvenient. So I think in a way... It's his his strength is his the degree to which his fate is so intertwined with Putin also becomes his weakness. And there are a lot of people, I mean, certainly the technocrats and the oligarchs, who regard the kind of the vision that Patrushev has for Russia as being one that is antithetical. I mean, he clearly, you know, he does believe in an almost like this kind of permanent garrison state in a in a in, in a global struggle against what he regards as a hegemonic West. Um, you know, this is a I'd almost call it a Trotskyite vision of kind of permanent global revolution, um, albeit sort of clad in a boring grey suit. That is not the vision for Russia that actually a lot of people within the system have. The last question for today's interview comes from students. And, and it's, I think, a very interesting one. Is Patrushev traveling abroad? And if so, is he able to make any friends in the security agenda, especially if, you know, he's sanctioned and, and the world is developing as it is developing at the moment? And this question comes from sort of multipolarity that Russia is presenting. So some students are interested if Patrushev is able to get some security backup abroad as mm. a, one of the highest representative of the security issues slash foreign policy in Russia? That's a, it's a really good question and it addresses, well, it, it hits a whole variety of issues. I mean, first of all, it's a useful reminder. You know what you talk about sanctions and so forth, that actually when Western leaders like President Biden say the world is opposed to Russia and its aggression, actually much of the world doesn't really care, finds this an inconvenience and a distraction rather than actually a sort of a core security interest. And there is a lot of, of sense that there's been a degree of Western hypocrisy and sanctimony. 
um, you know, that this this war matters. But what about all those other wars? What about what happened in Yemen and so forth? You know, where was the West then? So, you know, I, I think the, the Russians have been surprisingly effective at, at playing to that. And it's amazing how there is this Russian narrative, particularly in Africa, but not exclusively there, that the war in Ukraine is actually an anti-colonial war. That a hegemonic West is trying to use Ukraine to force Russia to bend the knee, and Russia is just simply pushing back. And for countries whose experiences of imperialism have been at the hands of the Brits or the French or the Dutch or the Germans or whoever, um, then this has a certain degree of, of traction. So in that context, I mean, yes, Patrushev in some ways has emerged as the kind of the parallel foreign minister, particularly when it comes to security affairs. Uh, and so we do see him traveling to places like, well, I mean, he actually travels quite, quite a bit, but particularly you know, BRICS countries. In, you know, he talks to the Chinese, he talk, recently talked talk to the Indians and that kind of thing. So he is actually quite, quite active both within Moscow, but also traveling around. I mean, for, for, a, for a guy his age, he's 70 years old, he often has a truly punishing um, travel schedule. And in that sense, well, can, can he make friends for Russia? The honest answer is Russia has essentially no friends these days. What it does have, though, is a variety of countries with whom it has certain parallel interests. Um, and these may be countries like, well, say China, that is, you know, on one level regards this war as a bit inconvenient, but on the other hand, you know, it is happy to see Russia in some ways as the icebreaker slamming into the sort of Western dominated world order because that sense of it creates a channel that China will happily exploit in the future. Or there are countries which are happy to buy cheap Russian oil or gas at a discount, um, which obviously allows the Russian war machine to continue, but also helps, helps their economies. Or countries that just simply see Russia as a source of a degree of sort of diplomatic or practical assistance. You know, if one looks at what happens in Africa with, with the Wagner mercenary group, I mean, the irony is that Wagner is often actually quite popular locally because its own rough and ready way, it does fight jihadist insurgents and such like. And in particular places like where, say, the French withdrew, such as Mali, Russia can come in and, and, and fill the gap. So I, th I think in this respect, what the Russians are very good at is not making friends, but making alliances of, of, of convenience, which absolutely will only last as long as they're mutually convenient. But in that respect, I think Patrushev is is actually quite quite effective at at being the voice of ruthless pragmatism. You know, Lavrov, for all his recent uh, degeneration, nonetheless comes from a tradition of diplomacy. You know, of multilateralism, of trying to create um, non-zero sum political situations. And that has its strengths, but also its weaknesses. Patrushev, it's very different. It's much more, you know, the world is a hostile place in which everyone is trying to exploit everyone else. And frankly, the West, they are not your friends. They are your oppressors. We can do deals. And that that has some kind of, 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 of success. As I said, it's 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 not soft power. Um, no one's no one's really thinking Russia. That's a country I'd like to be more like. Um, but on the other hand, you might say in 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 Patrushev's very kind of stark global order, in which it's essentially a hegemonic US-run West 
that tries to dominate everyone else, he can still find those alliances of convenience. Mark, thank you very much for your time, for your insightful thoughts about this very special topic. Uh, I wish you good luck, good energy with all your writings, books and articles that you are presenting to the public. And thank you for being on Our Thinker and sharing your thoughts with us. My great pleasure. Excellent set of questions, I thought. Thank you and see you next time.